I mean, to me, locality and regionality are perhaps the most important elements in good fresh food. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Welcome to Digital Marketing Masters. I'm your host, Matt Rouse. Today, my guest is David Page. How are you, David? I'm great. How are you, Matt? I am doing super. And you're the two-time Emmy winner and changed the world of food television by creating, <gasps> developing, and executive producing the groundbreaking show, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And before that, as a network news producer based in London, Frankfurt, and Budapest, you traveled Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, covering some of the biggest stories in the world and developing a passion for some of the world's most incredible food. David, I would like to talk a little bit about food shows and food marketing and stuff. But first, I wanted to ask you, what is coming up for you right now? Well, my new book is out. It's called Food Americana. It's the intellectual expansion, I guess, of the interests that first got me to do diners. It's a look at American cuisine. How did we make a national cuisine in a country full of immigrants and with no unified history of its own culinarily? And the answer is, and it's um, kind of interesting given all the debate about immigration these days, we melded pieces of a bunch of other food cultures into one, modified each of them to our tastes, and that's American cooking. You know, sushi is now, for all intents and purposes, as we eat it, an American food. Certainly tacos are, certainly bagels are. They all came from a different culture, and we took them and did with them what fit us. So that book is out, and so far doing very well. Nice. So kind of the uh, the melting pot, right? That the United States is and not melting pot the restaurant, but that is another example. What do you think is probably the kind of the culmination of all the influx of different cultural food? I know it's still happening. So do you think that American food culture is kind of stuck or do you think it's like evolving still? Oh, it continues to evolve. And what's interesting is the cultures that we drew from are evolving on their own. So, you know, there's <laughs> among some foodies, there's the authenticity debate right. is uh, you're not cool because the food you're eating isn't authentic. Well, I got news for you. The food everywhere is changing. So when you're having the authenticity debate here, you're, you're probably having it regarding food from 10 or 20 or 100 years ago. I mean, one of the one of the most popular foods in China these days is scrambled eggs and tomato. I, I don't think the average American diner or foodie is, is thinking of that as authentic Chinese food. What's happening, though, interestingly, is, well, two things are happening. Number one, partially because of immigration. Well, completely because of immigration, but, but increases in immigration from various places over the years. Regional dishes that were not part of the Americanized version of certain cuisines are now entering much more of the mainstream. For example, one of the hottest foods in America right now is something called birria de res, which is a spicy stewed beef dish served uh, in America anyway, 
in tacos that have been grilled. And then you take the taco and you dunk it into what's called consomme, which is a cup full of the cooking juice. Now, birria comes in two forms. It comes generally as goat from central Mexico, and it comes as birria de res from the Tijuana area, which is beef. From there, it crossed over to LA. And in the last few years, it's taking the US by storm. As a wonderful part of our research, my wife and I, not that long ago, drove down to Philadelphia from the Jersey Shore, where we live, about 90 minutes, to a, a truck that is serving some of the best birria de res anywhere. It's extraordinary. So just a remarkable dish. And they're lining up around the block for that. In the realm of Chinese food, for example, for the book, we were taken to a huge food court, food hall. It was just massive. In Flushing, which is in Queens in New York, I was actually born there. I guess it was mostly Jewish at the time. Now it's mostly Chinese immigrants or sons and daughters of immigrants. And the food sold at this food court is all what's sold in China these days. There are some ingredients that can't be found or that are different, according to the young Chinese students who who took me. But the food was remarkable. And it was some of it was things that you think you're used to these days, like noodles or perhaps dumplings. Some of it was, to be candid, not something that most Americans would think of as A, good, or B, Chinese food. And it was remarkable. Everything from duck blood to artery to tripe, especially in a dish called dry pot, where it's all tossed in there together. And I guess steamed, To to be honest, I'm not quite sure if the pieces were done differently individually anyway, although I guess it would have to. Uh, have been done differently because among the dry pot items, for example, were fried fish. And that that dish was remarkable, incredibly spicy. I was told later by my hosts that they had actually asked it to be toned down. But that sort of what foodies would call authentic, and, and most of us don't like that word, this is becoming increasingly popular, at least in New York and around L.A., among non-Chinese as well. But but the fact of the matter is there are now so many Chinese because of immigration, which was fueled to some extent the opportunity to move by economic improvements in China. There are so many Chinese immigrants here now that Fuchsia Dunlop, an expert on Chinese food, explained to me, these restaurants can exist by making food for the Chinese themselves. Whereas up until recently, Chinese restaurants in America had to make food for non-Chinese. So these tastes of home were, to a great extent, ignored. But yeah, in general, look at bagels and locks. There's a tremendous upscaling, not, not just of that particular dish, but of the whole traditional New York Jewish menu, which was at one point virtually the food of poverty. Delis or bagel bakeries all across the country are getting remarkably avant-garde with the things they are doing with with those dishes. You see a lot of places throughout the country, including, for example, Rosenberg's in Denver, where they're smoking their own salmon to make their own 
well, technically it's smoked salmon because lox isn't smoked, it's brined. But what people think of as the orange stuff that goes on top of a bagel. There are a lot of places making their own bagels. I came across a couple in Kansas City that run Meshuggah bagels. Meshuggah is Yiddish for crazy because trying to open a bagel bakery with no knowledge of how to do it in a place that is not particularly Jewish took some guts, but they've been very successful. He is from New York and Jewish. He is from Kansas City and not, and did not understand why after he moved to Kansas City, he was complaining about being in a bagel desert until she had a business trip to New York. He came with her. They went, I don't know if it was to Zabar's or one of the other great appetizing stores, but they picked up a bunch of this food and went and sat on a blanket in Central Park. And from that point on, she was driven by her love for locks and bagels. Hey, so I wanted to ask you about, you know, talking about the kind of variation of ingredients. I heard someone being interviewed the other day. Uh, I can't remember their name off the top of my head, but they're on CBC radio because I'm in Canada right now. And they were saying that there's 30,000 edible plant species in the world. And in the United States, they only eat about 150. And mm -hmm. it seems like the variation in food culture only is maybe just over the last, you know, 20 years or so in the United States has really started to pick up with a lot more variation. It seemed like there was a lot, I don't know, less choice, I guess, before that. But I don't know for sure. I only know the West Coast where I used to live. So, well, uh, I would not disagree with your assessment at all. I think America has become far more adventurous or at least open to food alternatives in recent years, maybe the last 30. A lot of this stems from California, where the farm to table movement got started, I guess, as far back as the 70s. The, the problem is, I'm not sure that the food industry, and it is an industry, has defined how to interest you in different foods in that so much of what's good and good for us, in my mind, is marketed only as good for something. In other words, good for right. the world. As, organic is not something I, I'm just enamored of. It's fine. It's great. On the scale of saving the world, it will eventually be important. But I'm not convinced an organic tomato is necessarily better than a good Jersey tomato raised by some guy who's been doing it here in Jersey for 40 years and still uses some pesticides. I mean, I would argue that Jersey tomatoes in the summer, which is when you ought to eat tomatoes, even though we have genetically engineered them to be perfectly round so you can ship them and they're available all year, I would argue that a Jersey tomato is a wonderful thing. We've had a hard time convincing Americans to eat other foods to some extent, I think, because they're sold as good for you or good for the world. Quinoa is a fine thing. It doesn't taste like much of anything. It's kind of nutty. But if quinoa were marketed as a tasty alternative to egg noodles to go under your beef stew, even though, oh my God, you're eating red meat, to my mind, at least, that would open up the, the, the audience. If quinoa recipes were there in the in the supermarket, pushing quinoa as something that tastes good, that might help sell what for 10 minutes looked like a promising product, but 
to the best of my knowledge, has not overtaken the American supermarket. Definitely a lot of room for both more cultures of food and more ingredients from other places, as well as I think there's been, uh, well, when I, I lived in Oregon, there's a large farm CSA, like farm community supported agricultural movement there, which is not necessarily organic, but it's a lot kind of based on heritage varieties of vegetables and you know, instead of just getting mm-hmm. the one kind of tomato that's at the supermarket, they would grow 20 kinds of tomatoes, you know, or, you know, eight varieties of potatoes mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. And you, you could see what the differences were between them. I just think that from a marketing standpoint, just like you were saying, there's nobody out there saying that potatoes taste different if it's black or purple potato versus, you know, a russet potato or a starchy potato or a waxy potato and and what the differences are. They're just like, baked potatoes, get them. They're cheap. We have Idaho, (laughs) you know, we have no, we have no respect for the potato in the United States. It, it, It serves basically one function. Here's the starch on your plate. Right. In Peru, they have 200 varieties of potatoes. And they taste different and they're used in different ways and mm-hmm. for different things. Look, as, as much as I don't necessarily jump up and down when you call something organic, there is no better place to get good food than a farmer's market. Right. If, if it's a legit farmer's market, if it's what's coming from, I mean, to me, locality and regionality are perhaps the most important elements in good fresh food. I want to eat something that didn't spend a week on, on a truck. I want to eat something that was picked yesterday or the day before, not two weeks ago or a month ago. To me, I can taste those differences. Now, it is hard in this country to um, live entirely on that sort of food, especially since even someone who talks a good game like myself has become accustomed to non-seasonal availability. My wife and I tried one year when we were living in Minnesota and patronizing a very good farmer's market in Minneapolis. We tried to live on the vegetables that were available at a particular time of year, which is, you know, a lot lot of root vegetables at certain times. And, you know, we made a good attempt and it was it was fun, but it didn't it did not define our menus. Also, we started we canned tomatoes that year. I had never canned anything before. Basically, canning means put it in a jar and boil it, steam it. But I kind of defeated the purpose of canning, i.e. keep a food until it's uh, um, out of season because the damn tomatoes were so good, I just kind of tore through them in short order. So that that experiment sort of failed. <laughs> the The idea of the farmer market is sure different. I, I used to live in, in St. Paul and I used to work in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And, you know, they had some okay markets, but you could tell like there was stuff there that people bought off a truck and just stuck on a stand, right? When you go to a oh, farmer yeah, market the- somewhere else, it's completely different, you know? Well, yeah, it's completely different in, of all places, New York City, where people don't realize the bounty of fresh food that is grown within 100 miles of New York City. You had to be careful at the at the market. Did you go to the one in Minneapolis, the one that had the, the steel structures, the overhangs? 
Uh, anyway. It was 20 um, years ago, so. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I found plenty of local food at that market. Yeah, and I also saw crates of Del Monte, which I didn't buy. And also, I mean, your definition of what, what's at a farmer's market isn't just vegetables. I, I would buy some terrific locally raised beef, which yeah. is very nice. I like locally raised food in general or even products, As right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, you know, I recently moved to Nova Scotia and I'm in Southern Nova Scotia. It's a rural community, fabulous markets, right? And mm-hmm. you go to the market and, you know, the guy, you know, or the girl behind the counter, they, they'll tell you like how they made the thing that they made and where they get the ingredients. And, you know, they have a butcher shop that is only local sourced meat. Right. And they have, mm. you know, the bakery there, they grind their own rye flour and, and, you know, it's just, everything is, is so freshly made. The food here is fabulous. And then you have, of course, you know, access to the Atlantic Ocean. You have things like lobster and, you know, Digby clams and, 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 you know, that kind of mm. stuff here. And, and you get mm. a different kind of thing on the West Coast, of course, but, you know, you have similar things. You can get Dungeness crab and you can get, you know, our, you know, Pacific cod and stuff like that, that you can get fresh and seasonal foods. And I think what's missing is people who live in large cities or they only shop at uh, supermarkets. You know, unless it's a pretty high end supermarket, you're not going to get that access to seasonal varieties for one or that much local produce, at least not in the places that I've lived before. Yeah, but even when you even when you have access to it, you have to use it. Um, Right. the, the, The tourist island that I live on still has a small commercial fishing port at one end. And these boats every day bring in what I personally believe to be the finest scallops on the face of the earth. They're extraordinary. And yet, before COVID, when you would go out to a restaurant and I'd order something local, scallops or tuna, we we have actual fresh tuna in August, and I'd look at the table next to me and a tourist would be eating fried shrimp. The shrimp came from Vietnam, dude. You're here with some of the freshest, best seafood in the world available to you off a boat that docked this morning. Why are you eating what you're eating? I just, I don't get it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, education there for one thing, but it's also, I mean, you know, people like what they like. And I'm not here to to convince people that they should eat better food. (laughs) I'm just, I'm glad that this is something that is available to us still. You know, and a lot of times it it is still, right? It's not like a new thing, being able to eat local, right? Eat local was the only option, you know, 60 years ago. Yes, but what's happened now is because of transportation, refrigeration, freezing and such, the joy and I was going to use the word purity, but that sounds as if my nose is way up in the air and I'm going to drown when it rains, of local food is being erased. There is a nationalization that has taken place in the United States of what had been regional foods. I used to look forward to going to a certain place to eat the foods associated with it. New Orleans for gumbo, for example or Memphis for the particular Memphis style of ribs. What has happened over the past couple of decades, I guess, is that these foods have now are now available virtually everywhere. Are they quite as good as they would have been at home? 
at their home, sometimes possibly, you know, smoke barbecue in Chicago serves damn fine Memphis ribs and Texas brisket. I don't know if they're doing Kansas City burnt ends, but if they are, I'm sure they're doing them well. On the other hand, I sort of mourn this homogenization. Ruth Reichel, the, the, the food journalism legend, said to me that in her mind, the only place to have a lobster roll is in Maine. And she may feel that way, but the lobster roll has completely nationalized because of the way lobster are processed straight from the dock to a processing plant. The meat, while put in cryovac, is incredibly fresh, and you can be buying it out of a, a Luke's lobster truck in the middle of the country within 48 hours. Lobster rolls all across the country are quite good. Are they better in Maine because you really can eat them on a wharf? Maybe. I would think that because in Maine you can get one that really did just come out of the water, it's going to taste better than one made out of processed lobster. But all across the country, this terrific dish is now available. And uh, I say this in both an admiringly and, and negative way. They're pretty good. You know, it's, it's like years ago, you couldn't get Coors beer east of the Rockies. And that turned Coors beer into a tremendously desirable product. It was a big deal. I was going to school in Oklahoma and I brought a six pack of Coors back east. I mean, and that was terrific beer. Well, in fact, Coors, in my opinion, is a pretty fourth rate beer. But the fact that it was available only in the Rockies made it, well, west of the Mississippi, right. made it taste awfully good when you had one. You know, so much of food is tied up in the experience. Well, now you have a show called Beer Geeks also. So you know about mm -hmm. beer. <laughs> but I did not until I started doing the show. Right. I learned it all from my host, Michael Ferguson, a master brewer. Nice. It's fantastic. And, you know, I wanted you, you hit on something there from, I know we are a digital marketing show, but I wanted to touch on that. What you talked about there is the lobster roll better when you're sitting on a dock in Maine. And I think the answer is yes. And not necessarily because it's more fresh, which I'm sure it is. And I'm sure that's a factor, but there's lots of studies that the environment makes you think things taste better. Right. So of there's, course. there's that old uh, psychological story about the French restaurant where they took all the dishes and cut them in half and half of them went to a room that just had crappy plastic chairs and tables. And the other went to a place with white tablecloths and, you know, waiters dressed up and, and, and that kind of thing. And people rated the food tasted better in the room that was, you know, set up like a fancier restaurant. Of course. Uh, so, yeah, the presentation matters. Right. But also well, the, that's like blind wine tasting. Right. Well, it's like the yeah. story behind it matters to the taste of it. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's a good lesson for people to learn in their business. Right. The the dressing around your product or service matters and the story behind it probably matters more than anything else. Oh, well, for, look, first off, there's that old expression, you eat with your eyes. Yep. The presentation factor is huge with food because it's a complete experience. It's a total sensory experience. And, and part of it is something we have been missing as a culture for the past year, which is the opportunity to use food as a tool 
to meet with friends and have good times. The concept of let's grab a cup of coffee, let's go out for dinner. It all folds into your sense of what the meal was. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, traditionally, food has been a social lubricant. Always. There is a a study that was done. It was in the book Influence mentioned it. And Mm -hmm. basically, the long story short of it is if you were to take your prospects out for a meal before you were to try and sell them something, you were much more likely to close the deal. And food primes people into liking you more, into liking uh, a product or a service more. And it's kind of a, a brain thing, right? You know, you're, you kind of get more satisfied from your meal and uh, the better the meal. And, uh, you know, the better the meal, the better it works. Amazing. Oh, absolutely. Which is an interesting potential issue post-pandemic because right. the predictions are that in-house dining will remain at depressed levels and that people will continue to order out or drive through. And many restaurants are actually planning modifications to their architecture to, to make that possible. What happens to the business launch? What happens to the romantic first date? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but uh, it's fascinating because all of the guidance that I'm seeing is aimed at, uh, that is being suggested for restaurateurs, is aimed at using social media to reassure your customer base that it's okay to come back to you, even so far as to emphasize your sanitation practices, which in the past was not the way to get someone to fork out 52 bucks for a veal chop. Right. You know, I think there's going to be restaurants expanding into more commercial space. You know, as companies kind of leave downtown cores because they have a workforce that works at home more often, they're going to need less space. I think some restaurants are going to fill up some of those spaces so that they can space their tables and patrons farther apart. That's hard in a place like New York. Given yeah, it's tough there. I mean, San Francisco and New York are just hell on restaurant leases. Yeah. Well, I think there's going to be almost like a restaurant inflation, right? So if you can mm-hmm. only fit 60% of the people who used to, you used to be able to fit in your restaurant, and maybe 20% of that is less staff and, and cost and stuff that you have to have, then the price of your meal is going to go up 20% because where are they going to make up the difference, right? There's only one well, way to do it. Many predictions I've been reading are that you're going to have two classes of restaurant prices, that the fine dining, the true fine dining restaurants are going to increase prices, but Mm -hmm. that the other end of the spectrum from casual to fast casual to quick service are going to have to remain incredibly low price conscious because uh, to some extent, uh, look, people who were hurt by the pandemic are not suddenly going to have money to buy things. And the concept of eating off the lower end of the spectrum obviously became even more popular when you didn't want to go into a place or a place was closed. I think delivery, like your Uber Eats, that kind of stuff, I think that is going to end up kind of splitting menu costs, right? It's going to be like, this is the online price and this is the eat-in price. I think we might see some of that. Well, 
Even places that deliver it themselves charge more for online items, for the same item, whether it's online or in-house. But one of the things I'm curious to watch as it shakes out is once the sense of panic goes away, are people going to realize how damn expensive third-party delivery is? You can add 10 bucks to a $24 item by having it delivered. Yeah, A lot of the advice being given to restaurateurs is deliver it yourself because these delivery services also take a piece from the restaurant. Right. And economically, they make no sense on either end. Convenience rules at the moment. I'll be curious to see how that shakes out. I mean, the predictions are delivery is here to stay at certainly close to pandemic levels, but we'll have to see. Yeah, I'm hoping that it comes back. One thing that I like to make sure I mention whenever I can is if there is a business, any business, whether it's a restaurant or something else, if there's a business that you want to be there when the pandemic's over, you better be spending money there now. Because, you know, if you have the means, how many times have you seen that post on, you know, Facebook or LinkedIn or, you know, you know, Instagram or whatever, where the restaurant says they're shutting their doors for good. And there's a hundred comments on it about, oh my God, that was my famous, my favorite restaurant. And then you ask the people and they haven't been there for six months. Of course they went broke. Yeah, well, look, Nobody's been independent, there. <laughs> independent restaurateurs are getting killed. Yeah, they are. Um, you know, the, the most recent numbers that are published were way back in December, but as of December, a hundred in 10,000 restaurants had closed. I'm sure the number is much larger by now. National chains are able to weather this storm much better than the couple who are the third generation owners of a pizza place that no one's coming to. A pizza is a bad, a bad example because it's takeaway, but some kind of local restaurant that requires you sit down. Right. And it's it's just a shame because I'd much rather eat at a locally owned mom and pop, a good one that makes good food. But I, I just, I abhor the concept of going into chain restaurants. And that makes me a food snob. But, you know, I, I look at what is it, Applebee's that, that wants to be your local tavern? Well, no, go find a local tavern. Right. <laughs> yeah, there seems to be, it's it's really that kind of kind of more expensive than kind of fast casual less expensive than fine dining in that middle area anything that's not a chain restaurant is sure taking a beating and uh, you know i hope that you guys can hang on go spend money at your favorite mom and pop restaurant david i hate to cut it short but we're kind of running out of time i wanted to mention your book again food americana the remarkable Please. people and incredible stories behind America's favorite dishes. And your book is available is available on local bookstores, of course, right? And Amazon, At, anywhere. Else. Anywhere, but the, the big boys online, you can go to Amazon, Walmart, Barnes and Noble, Bookshop. Makes a great gift too. Perfect. David, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Well, I really enjoyed it, Matt. Thank you. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Join us next week as we dive into more tips and ideas to grow your business. 
Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.